Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. When we think and talk about the government, complain actually, we most often are not talking about the nuts and bolts, the carrying out of the policy, the employing the policies that the political side of government are putting forth. We are usually talking about the people that we or they elect and often regret doing so. We are going to talk about employing technology to help make government better, but not just technology. There are steps to take first, and sometimes the culture must change as well. With us today is one of two authors of the book, Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology, written by Hannah Shank, and here on the line is Tara Dawson McGinnis. Tara is the founder of the New Practice Lab at New America and teaches public problem solving at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. Hannah Shank is Strategy Director for Public Technology at New America. Hi, Tara. Thank you for being here today to inform us about the under the hood of government operations. So one of the things that I've gotten from your book is that uh, government workers are not the problem. Government is not the problem. The problems lie in the systems, incentives, and structures government inhabits, which are no longer aligned with serving its citizenry in a digital era. It's really important. And so um, well, I think it did a ton of good. We have a long way to go to make um, policy making less top-down um, and really think through how it's going to reach people. Well, another thing you point out is the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, that could serve another 1.2 million people if they knew how to access it. One of the suggestions made was, well, uh, just have them log on. Uh, log on to what? Many of those 1.2 million people don't have computers, don't have passwords, don't know how to do all that. So um, how do you get it further along um, without going out into the field and asking why, though, you know, you can do not all of those 1.2 million, but asking people what's the impediment to getting you there. Um, I suppose that's why you want to do that on-the-ground work by organizations, why you need the buy-in not just from the people at the top, but the people at the bottom as well. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised this. I mean, uh, we write about this in Power to the Public about how important this is. This is also the subject matter of my daily work. I'm, you know, I am obsessed with getting Americans their earned income tax credit for precisely the reason you described. Like, um, there's been a big change in this policy in the American Rescue Plan. So the EITC and the Child Tax Credit are making these pre-existing bipartisan policies even more accessible to many more people. And we just know that so many Americans couldn't weather a $400 unexpected expense. So it was very surprising to me to see um, the billions of dollars being left on the table by folks who need it. In part, you know, testing to see what works. Um, there is now a front door where you could log in for, for people who don't make enough money to... That ends what ails us. That's what you uh, kind of open the book with. Uh, do you want to expand further and let us know what you meant to do with this book? Yes, you know, um, we declare at the front of the book, um, and this comes from my experience 
um, working in nonprofits and in the government, that there is no solving the world's hardest problems without government, and certainly without governments that really work for people. I think you can see this on display in, an, in a very unusual year, year and a half that we've had throughout the United States and the globe. For, for those mission critical things, when there is a, you know, a dangerous disease, when the, there are floods and fires, um, when we really need to survive an economic downturn, um, these are not things that a private sector um, company and app can generally provide. Often it is a collaboration between the public and private, but we really make the case that um, dealing with the most complex problems requires governments that really work for people. You know, uh, I wrote the book in part from my experience. I was a senior advisor to President Obama. I worked on uh, national policy, which many of you are familiar, now known as Obamacare, and my role was to get um, the uninsured signed up for health insurance. And while the policy at its core, I think, really worked, the mechanics of bringing it to people was really challenging. We had an epic failure um, before we had an epic success in healthcare.gov. And my experience after working for, for generations on, um, uh, for years on organizing ideas and um, campaigns and making public policy in Congress, I really found that in this moment in 2021, the ability to make a big idea really reach people, whether that's unemployment insurance or having access, not just access to health insurance, but really getting signed up and having um, the ability to go see a doctor or getting your child tax credit dollars that you may be eligible for but may not know how to receive if you um, don't make enough money to file taxes. I just have real passion for this kind of end delivery system of government. And I think we don't spend nearly enough time working on implementation as we do ideas. Uh, that's uh, probably true, as you found out and just mentioned to us about the Affordable Care Act uh, startup. That was not a good example of how government should work, uh, is it? No. In fact, if you look at kind of public polling about trusting government in the United States, we're at kind of an epic low right now. There's a real difference um, uh, in, what, in how Democrats feel when Democrats in power, Republicans feel when Republicans in power. But Across the board, when the government shut down in 2013 and healthcare.gov crashed, it had an impact in how people feel about their government. And so um, I don't think we can expect people to uh, feel differently about government if they're a lived experience at the DMV trying to get health insurance, signing up you know, in the pandemic for unemployment insurance. If their experience is terrible, it will impact how they feel about government overall. And so we need to do better. And you start off with some principles that we should all be following. Uh, and the thing that you mentioned at the beginning and is uh, part of your uh, four principles, um, I'm going to read it anyway. There is no solving the world's hardest problems without government. But then, of course, uh, Ronald Reagan said, the 10 scariest words in the English language are, we're from the government and we are here to help. Um, yeah. There are people who are working in this country to limit the size and scope of government. And Grover Norquist, uh, a tax guy who wants to eliminate government so much that he said, I'd like to get it down to the size where I could drown it in a bathtub. Uh, so I would guess that there's half of the country that wants the government to do more and half of the country that doesn't want government. Um, but let me go on with your principles. 
we believe in government and the people who work in government at all levels. Three, technology can play a critical role, but it is never the solution alone. And I think that's a pretty important thing we'll get into a little later. And four, the role of government should be to help all people, period. So that's your uh, principles that you start the book with. That's, uh, those are pretty good. Thank you. Uh, we spent a lot of time on them. And I think it's important to lay out principles before you jump in. A lot of the book um, narrates stories of, that are ostensibly a strong critique of something that happened when things went sideways, when they really didn't work. But um, I think it's really important to lay out that in some ways the core, the root problem, you have a lot of people, including on healthcare.gov, who were doing the best inside a framework um, that isn't at the moment designed to serve uh, in the time we live in. So at its core, we need a, a kind of renovation and update of what are, in some ways, very old principles in, inside the U.S. government. And you also point out that there are three areas that you think, uh, and that those go after the principles, and the first is design. To improve how government works today, we need to build a tighter feedback loop between the people and those who design policies for them. And there's also often, you say, a disconnect. Uh, there are people that sit in an office, don't ever speak to ever, anyone who's going to use the product that they're going to build, and have no idea whether it's effective or not. They just think that this is a good idea, we ought to do it. Uh, then the second, you say, is data. Using, collecting, and analyzing data to better see those you are serving is imperative to the public sector, basically or, or an iteration of what I just said, and delivery. The final aspect of public interest technology is the capacity to rapidly test, learn, and then improve via a minimum viable product, an MVP. Could you expand on that a bit? Sure. Um I think we really argue in the book that if we looked at people around the world who are having transformative outcomes on very hard problems, bringing mental health services to millions of people, um, including the hard to reach, ending homelessness, the people who were really having a high impact on solving problems were doing a combination of these three things, design, data, and delivery. And by design, we, fun we functionally mean was this thing meant for humans? <laughs> How do you know? Uh, it might have been a great idea, but do you have a feedback loop between people who are using um, this public policy and the folks who designed it in order to make it and tweak it and make it work better? Data, there's a ton of data out there, and we, we do ascribe a lot of pause for how data can be misused, um, but that we have data being used right now to do things like sell us a cup of coffee. There's amazing data that Starbucks uses on a regular basis to know that when it's this degree cold, you might want a pumpkin latte. We have none of those sort of data resources to help people in crisis and make sure, hey, you're eligible for um, food assistance right now. You might be eligible for Medicaid, for health care for your children. Um, and on delivery, this is kind of where we started, Bob. You know, thinking something through from the very beginning to the end. And while the, in California, for example, in Silicon Valley, there's been a rapid growth in how to quickly test the minimum vial product, the simplest, lightest weight thing you could use and see if people use it before you build a company off of it. This is actually a relatively old science, too. Um, there's a great engineer, Edward Demings, who worked in the 40s and had a similar cycle of plan, do, study, 
um, that he brought to private sector um, companies. So I, I, I want to be clear, there isn't anything per se new and magical in this, although you feel all the time the impact of, of excellent um, delivery work from some of the country's leading um, technology companies in, in helping to connect us. And so bringing some of those practices to bear on what I would argue are really important things, um, kind of life or death matters, I think there's space for improvement. I think I will say this isn't... Um, uh, Hannah, if she were here, would say this is a choose-your-own-salad. Mm. You need a combination of the three. Um, data can re- lead you really far astray if you don't have the practice of kind of checking in with folks. We um, we tell a story in the book about um, New York City, which does on a regular basis rat abatement. And the chief data mm. um, lead for the city um took a look at the data that was supposed to predict where the city was doing rat abatement. And he did what any person does, which is when you're looking at a big data set, you go and look at like the neighborhood where you grew up. And um, he had grown up in, um, in a lower income neighborhood in a public authority uh, with a big authority housing project. We had really big rat problems and he saw, huh, no rats in the data. So he sent his team back and asked them to slice it a different way. And still, kind of no rats in this place where he just knew. So he went to the neighborhood, he visited friends, he visited friends. And he, so he did, number one, checked in with the humans, you know, to just see how it was going. What's the hmm. feedback loop? And he called a friend who grew um, and said, like, what's up? You got rats still in the projects? And he said, yeah, we got rats. Of course we have rats. They're still here. Well, how come you don't call 311? He said to his friend. And his friend said, what's 311? Hmm. <laughs> Which was the single source for reporting where rats were. Um you know, demonstrating a real blind spot in the data. If you have a single source, which we know skews um, overwhelmingly to kind of middle class and, and white families, then you may have one group of people's assessment of where the data is. And if you come from a community where you are not habituated and 311 isn't something your neighbors tell you to call when you have a problem with a tree or a window or a rat, um, then you could end up spending billions of dollars from New York City on neighborhoods that are not the real uh, challenge for rat abatement. And so I tell that story because data was important, right? Yes. Um, but also the check with the humans matters a great deal. And it's the twinning, I think, that is really powerful. And, and that goes throughout the book. Um, you show of some difficulties and some successes. And in almost every case, it was the application of speaking to the end user or the lack of including the end user in solving the problem. And one of the things I want to point out is in Michigan, and I'm talking about the infamous form DHS-1171. It had 1,200 questions, 42 pages, and 18,409 words. And yet it didn't get much information because people couldn't fill it out. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a story I love. Um, you know, Michigan, in, in kind of a good-hearted attempt to make sure that when people were applying for public benefits, they used one form, not 10, ended up with a ginormous form. <laughs> and in fact, uh, there's a person we feature named Michael Brennan. He runs a civic design shop called Sevilla out of Michigan. Tiny little team. And he used to work for the United Way. And he came across this form he printed it out and taped the pieces together and he could, he would roll it out at speeches and say like, when you're in a crisis and help from the state of Michigan, this is what help looks like. And he would dramatically roll out the form. And he got kind of focused on this form in a way that he just said, our systems are no longer working for the humans. He quit his job. He teamed up with a bunch of 
designers from Stanford, and they took on the project of improving the form. And the um, the story of how they did it, they couldn't have done it alone as an outside shop. They found some partners in the Michigan um, uh, state, and they asked them, they did some research with frontline workers, and they asked the Michigan um, Health and Human Services team if they could talk to their frontline workers, and they did research, hours of research, just hearing what it was like for people who filled out this form. That included questions like, tell me the date of the conception of your children. Truly <laughs> inappropriate and humiliating, um, you know, and, and how you get to this level of uh, weighty form. And what the team at Sevilla did was they briefed, they asked senior officials to come for a briefing with them. And instead of a memo or a slide deck, they simulated the experience that the average beneficiary, you know, has in any government, Michigan government state office. And so they made a noisy office. So that's what they had learned from their research. They didn't have enough chairs. And they asked these senior officials, they basically pretended, welcome to the Tech Town Benefits Office. Here's the form. And they sat in uncomfortable silence while senior officials, several of whom had never encountered this form that is the front door to their services, had an awkward, you know, 10 or 11 minutes. And after that, they walked them through an experience of what it was like, both for their workers and for the folks on the front uh, who were really trying to get benefits in crisis. And after that, the team committed on the spot to make an improvement. It was a long slog. They worked with this outside partner. Um, they cut the application down. They slashed the number of words and questions by 80%. This involved making sure the questions weren't established by law, lawyers, policy folks. They, the time it took to fill out the application dropped from 40 minutes to 16, and the percentage of applications that were completed jumped from 72, so a third of people get lost along the long way, to 94%. And they were having, a, you know, it's much more efficient for both government workers <laughs> for taxpayer dollars as well as for, you know, getting people through to this emergency help they need that made it really humane again. And I, I love the story because it involves kind of really hearing the voices of not only beneficiaries, but state workers, it took, um, you know, leaders walking in the shoes of the folks they serve um, and a level of detail to kind of make this um, bureaucratic reform happen. But it had a huge impact. It impacts over a million people a year, um, something like this form. So I think it's a great story of what what really any state agency could do to lower the gate, to make to make what is what folks are legally eligible for, actually accessible to them. And that's one of the points you make, Tara, is that if you don't get buy-in from the top, uh, the whatever the thing is that you're trying to improve is doomed to fail. And an example that I remember is when Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, was mayor of Newark. Uh, and he grew up in a uh, middle-class family, and he was pretty successful as an attorney. And what he did was move into an apartment in one of the worst neighborhoods in Newark to see what it was like, to see what his constituents were going through. And he became better informed and helped institute better policies in the city of Newark. And that probably is what propelled him to become senator. But that's the thing. Unless you have the DMUs, and those are the decision-making units, actually get behind a program with everything in their being, it's not going to work. I totally agree. You need these leaders like Senator Booker. Um, you also, it, it often doesn't work just with the leaders. You need someone on the front line who 
you know, inside the um, Michigan Health and Human Services Department, there was a frontline worker who took this on with the same vigor that the most senior official who said we're doing this did. And it really, you know, it takes work to do this, but it is not rocket science. Um, you know, some of this is relatively intuitive. You, you, They did use great user researchers and designers to improve the form, but any normal human could look at a 42-page form with some of these questions and say, this is too long. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. This is not what help feels like. So I think, um, you know, really having leadership at the top, but also the idea that any of this change could happen from kind of anywhere inside a nonprofit or government saying, hey, you know, like, have we asked whether this would be helpful to folks? Um, You know, it's an unfortunate feature, especially as governments get bigger and bigger or nonprofits get bigger, that the more senior you get, the more removed you are from the lived experience. You mentioned at the top, I teach a course at Georgetown in the public policy graduate school, and I make my really excellent graduate students who are experts on food security and climate change and all sorts of things. Early in the class, I, I ask them to find a form in their area of um, expertise. And overwhelmingly, someone who's worked, these are you know, often mid-career officials, worked in voting rights forever, but never actually took a look at what this front door experience is. And I have them dissect what was What's there because of a law and what's there because of regulation and um, how did that feel? And um, most of my students in the data I collect at the end of the course, this exercise more than anything else sticks with them. That this is a practice I think anyone um, working in the public interest needs to do. It's just you could do a lightweight way, you know, walk in someone's shoes. You could do an intense way like Senator Booker, move into the neighborhood. But if we will not serve people well if we don't carry the humility of, of not presuming what people need, but of asking. So, Tara, you and Hannah, your co-author, have a lot of experience in this area. Uh, As you point out, Hannah is a technologist, and she's at the public problem-solving table, and and we can get into that in a little bit. And you are a public leader who is tech-fluent enough to expand the classic toolbox. And what you also point out is sometimes paper is better than digital. So with your knowledge... Uh, and Hannah's knowledge, can you explain what you mean by uh, paper is sometimes better than digital? Yeah, I think um, often, you know, it is easy to say, this is a really hard problem. Let's see if technology can fix it. And when we make pretty clear, I think it's surprising to people who pick up a book about technology. We have a whole chapter dedicated to you know, if someone is telling you that an app will end homelessness, you should turn them away at the door. Like technology can be a critical part of the solution. But on these um, social challenges, it's rarely the solution. And so having leaders who know what these technologies, and they're not the same, and they're changing all the time. What can, you know, data do? What can machine learning do? What can it not do? Where are the biases embedded, as I described, from the data sources? Um, but also, you know, what problems can you apply these to? And so I think we really found, and and by the end of the Obama administration, I think we had had really a, a strong grip on this. We needed not only more technologists at the table who could say, hey, I brought a million products like that to market in the, in the credit space. It's going to take more than six weeks. We need to have a deadline that's reasonable here. You know, just real experience on bringing products to market. On the flip side, on the policy side, we need more policy folks who know kind of what these tools are, how kind of contracting can make a real big difference in how you set the goals. Is this about access or is this about fraud? Is this about uh, really being clarifying about what the business 
um, specs are for some of the work that we're doing. And so it's um, we're not going to have technologists replace lawyers, but we're going to need lawyers who understand a little more of the basics, and we're going to need profoundly more data scientists and user researchers and um, uh, engineers who graduate from uh, schools of their choice and say, you know what, I want to go help people by working for my city or this nonprofit. You know, the, the competition um, over engineers uh, and what you can make coming out of school is formidable. But I think having worked for a number of those who've been serving in the public interest, nothing matches helping a million veterans access their benefits. Nothing matches the kind of um, outcomes you can have. It's fun to, you know, I think if you, when your alternative in the private sector may be fighting with one company for another company or making a slightly better, better photo sharing app. Um, the value that some of these skills can play in in keeping the public sector um, up and having the best in class in some of these technological skills is going to be really important. Uh, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. Uh, you're listening to Politics a Love Story. Our guest today is Tara Dawson McGinnis, who, with her co-author Hannah Shank, wrote Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology. Now, uh, I, my personal interest is politics because I see everything as being political in one way or another, which leads me to these two questions I'm going to ask you. How does political consideration enter into the decision-making process for whether changing a form or introducing a program? Uh, what does politics have to do with it? You know, I think... Um the self is political, so I, I think it's an important question to raise. That that in any one of these things, these aren't these aren't simply technocratic tools. They can be used for things or against things, and there's some examples um, of them being used to serious harm. I would make kind of two cases. One is that whether you're someone who wants a government so small you can drown it in a bathtub, or you're someone like myself who believes there's a, a role for the um, public sector in in um, creating more opportunity as there has been in the peak of all uh, areas of prosperity in U.S. history. Making it function um, is mission critical. When it comes, you know, so it's, I'd say while I think this, uh, there's a bigger impetus on folks who believe in government working for people to, to use these tools than perhaps folks who want to shrink the size of government, I think you've seen, I've seen great examples of parties um, of opposing parties, the Michigan story I described started under a, Demo a Republican administration, completed under Democrats. Some of these things about just basic functioning of government, I think, don't have to be a kind of red thing or a blue thing. On the other hand, uh, in the politics of this, you know, we can take a look at unemployment insurance to see there are, in the design and delivery, there is often a who are we designing for? Are we designing for the hardest to reach Americans, the 10%? Are we designing for the easiest to reach Americans who might have a lawyer and accountant to help them fill out this form? Um, so in who you're designing for, there's a really important question. But I'll tell you, it's amazing how often in, in uh, government and nonprofits, how no one really thought about who they're designing for. And somehow you've got a you know, tax form that looks like this or a, um, the Michigan uh, Emergency Benefits Form might not have sometimes there is literal design to cut people out but sometimes this is just default and nobody it's just not part of the practice of designing forms for human in the government you know these are written with a kind of litigious origin 
not with what you might have in a kind of product and service company where they're like, how easy can we make it for someone to get the thing? Hmm. Um, so there are design choices about who you think you're envisioning. We say in, in my new practice lab, we design for the 10% because if you make it work um, for, for folks who have uh, you know, more limited challenges with, with language, who have bad bandwidth connection, then it's going to work really well for everyone else. <laughs> um, and so if you design for the most vulnerable, you end up really doing a better job for, for everyone. Um, but there are design choices in who you think you're serving. One of the Often we make them these days by default. Sorry, Bob. That's okay. One of the points you made, though, was that uh, when trying to introduce a technology to process, um, the, the normal thinking, not the normal thinking, but the usual thinking is, well, we got to go big. And you have these large yeah. vendors like IBM who have a $100 million program or a $500 million program. And if they get that, they're going to have work forever because they're going to have to adjust it and fix it and improve it. But it's huge. But you suggest that if you break it down into smaller components and then test those components, you have a better chance of having it work better than a huge program that goes in without any testing and then flops. Uh, That's totally right. In the, in the lexicon, we call this um, agile contracting versus waterfall contracting. And this is a big switch that has happened generally, although there's still some outliers in the private sector over the past decade or so, where people used to buy big and now buy in smaller, tested, bite-sized pieces. It hasn't come as quickly to um, the federal government, although you could argue the turnaround of healthcare.gov was a reverse-engineered testing small before you test big. We failed big, and then we built part by part back. Um, you know, it sounds counterintuitive. It's actually these large government pro pro programs are so risky, and such a high percentage of them fail. It's sort of counterintuitive to say instead of definitely burning a billion dollars. Why don't you try it for two hundred fifty thousand and see if anyone uses it? Mm. If it can work for the humans, um, and it means changing the contracting process. It, it does. It, people often say like, "Oh, Tara, isn't it going to take longer?" Most of these long-term builds are multi-years. You get to the end, you've spent all the money, and you haven't yet um, delivered for humans. So, task, really learning quickly what works and what doesn't work, and there is a pretty high fail rate in both the private and public sector IT, but failing faster in this case and learning what worked about it and what didn't work is the future. One of the things you point out is that introducing a new way of solving public problems and forgiving someone a benefit who shouldn't have received one, uh, there is a big penalty. Uh, no one gets a trophy or a raise for enrolling more people in a benefit, speeding the process, or simplifying people's lives. But denying people, uh, they don't get hurt by denying people. You know, there is this culture runs really deep. Um, it's alive in a lot of my work, Bob. And I think it's incredibly important. There are very good reasons to make sure we have, you know, controls on, on who's receiving what and that, that there isn't massive amounts of fraud. But we have in some ways over-mandated um, and prescribed penalties if you are the frontline worker who... Um, is responsible for approving an application that gets someone something and that they shouldn't have had, the penalties are formidable for public sector workers without an equivalent version of, um, you know, if you process applications faster and you help someone 
get this assistance before they lose their house. And now the government's on the hook for helping them, you know, become unhoused, which is a much more expensive thing than just helping people stay paying their rent so they can get through. Um, we, I think there's a really important shift we need to make. We, you know, what you measure matters, what you set as goals matters. We have over torqued in the direction of prevention of uh, benefits going to the wrong person and under torqued in access. And, you know, if you look at the, if the private sector equivalent, the aspirational rates that companies, you know, credit card companies or banks have for, um, create, you know, creating this balance between, um, you know, identity, losing money to avoid any threat and making the, the money that people have in their banks accessible to their customers is a true balance. And, and in the private sector, you set a ratio of what you expect. And it's much higher than we would have in the, in the public sector. And that's probably right, given taxpayer dollars. But the idea that we're going to have zero, zero loss actually means we end up leaving a ton of shutting the wrong people out um, because we've made the process so difficult for people. And I think um, this is an important thing to readdress. We, the peak of the pandemic, I read a story um, in a newspaper about how quickly independent business owners and gig workers in Germany got their funds at a time when um, the PPP program here was just a big mess. And I thought, how did that happen? So we we called around until we met a very senior official in the German government. And I'll never forget, Bob, one of the things he said to us was, we learned from our last economic crisis that if the government moves too slowly, you cannot get yourself out of the economic hole. And so he had looked at the form for, for the assistance for small business owners and said, this is too hard. We need to have people self-attest if they need the money and we have a place they can send it back if they were wrong and they didn't. And we will hold them penalty if they, if they, were, if they lied to us on this form. But he, but he said, we cannot risk crashing the economy because we cannot trust the public. Mm. And if you look at their immediate response, it was profound to me. Like it had not even seemed to sitting in the United States of America as like an option, like, Oh yeah, actually like, you know, there are other ways. This is a sophisticated um, federalized nation that that took a different approach and really it worked. And so I think thinking about the cost benefit analysis on making the gatekeeping so high that you undermine the basic basics of emergency rent um, in the first place. Well, you have a couple of other success stories in your book, and one of them is Rockford, Illinois, and it's on track to eliminate homelessness, and they have a program called Built for Zero, talking about zero uh, in your last statement. So what happened in Rockford, and how are they almost eliminating homelessness? Maybe we should all learn from that. You know, Rockford is one of dozens of cities, I think it's over 75, that are working with a nonprofit called um, Community Solutions in effort that is, that is aimed at zero, built for zero. And uh, I can tell you a little more about how Rockford did it, but I want to say they are not some um, special unicorn. They are among dozens of cities taking this methodology and having a real impact. How they did it, in essence, was a combo of what we describe in the book. They found you can't solve a problem you can't see. And the ability for local communities, often you know, homelessness is a hyper-local um, challenge. Local communities, many, 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 have no way to measure 
real-time homelessness. There's a national point-in-time homeless count. People go out and actually count the homeless, but it is data that for, for leaders on the ground, like those we interviewed in Rockwood, profoundly unuseful. They need to know how many folks are unhoused in their community, how many of them are, uh, you know, there's different types of homelessness, chronic, family, veterans homelessness. They have different sorts of solutions that are based on the community. They first had to really understand what is the problem we're facing on a data-wise. Second, it's very similar to what we saw. They, they realized that people are not a statistic. You can't, um, not everyone needs a bed. Well, each person who needs who needs a home and needs a home, but but the path to getting there may be different. And so they went out and did really community-led user research to try to find people, put a face to a name, a photo to a name. They understand that this person, you know, likes the Chicago um, White Sox. And so if, if uh, the next step in the chain allows that person to catch a game, they may be more likely to be, um, you know, in treatment or in this particular um, temporary housing scenario. And so really having the humility to understand the people who they're serving in their community. Just doing these two things, Bob, requires a community to come together, right? No one has a list of the unhoused and no one really knows them. Often you see frequent flyers in hospital beds or frequent flyers in, in, in jails because of how we've criminalized being homeless in the United States. Other folks see them in the shelter, but getting a full picture involves a bunch of public and private sector actors coming around the table to share their information so that it isn't, hey, we've got 20 beds and 20 are filled tonight, but more like, how is this person doing? Are they doing okay? And they, they left the hospital today and they got a place to stay. And so while there's real privacy protections on the data, really seeing the humans they're serving, not just kind of, do we have enough beds in a shelter, changes the fundamental nature of the problem. You so also- does the idea. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So does the idea that what we're aiming for is zero not slightly less homeless or, you know, the aspirational goal brought people together. Well, you also point out uh, that most of the homeless people that were dealt with were veterans. Yeah. In in this particular city, they put a focus on veterans housing. It was a goal under President Obama and the unique needs and the unique benefits that are eligible, you know, over um, with way too many American veterans who serve the country and are homeless today and for a wide range of reasons. And so by really understanding, it's very surprising. One of the things they found, when you have real-time data, you can see, hey, we're doing better. Ooh, we're doing worse. We tried this intervention that's making an impact. And one of the surprising interventions for vets in Rockford was not housing, but it was access to transportation. On one side of town was a place, um, was a VA. On another side of town was maybe some other resources and for homeless vets who could not afford the bus fare, this was a first mover problem for them to see their doctor, to reach someone else, a, a caseworker. And so on the unlikely you know, path along the solution to ending homelessness for vets was to make bus fare free for vets. And it's relatively inexpensive intervention. It had a big impact in allowing people to get across the town to services they need if they didn't have access to a vehicle. So all throughout your book, in almost all of the cases, it was doing, rather than sitting in an office and proposing ideas that may or may not work, uh, you saw cases where the people who were committed to a program had feet in the streets getting information and finding out why something was or wasn't working. And uh, one of the other things you found was that when... Uh, shelters were full, somebody had the bright idea, well, let's give a voucher for a place and 
they had private homes that were being paid, I think, $1,000 a month to house uh, a homeless person. And you found that, or the people on the ground found, that they weren't taking those vouchers. And then delving in further, they found that those vouchers were for houses in an upscale neighborhood, and they didn't feel comfortable on one hand. Another, it was not where their kids could go to school easily. And unlike the shelters, which gave three hots and a cot, as it's often explained, they got just got a room and no food. So why would they want to take a voucher with all of those negatives that I just mentioned? Yeah, some of this is like very basic. It's really just following, hey, what happens? You know, being curious. Why? What, whoa, everyone says they need access to housing. No one's taking these vouchers. What is the barrier? And I think for folks who are leading nonprofits or if you're sitting in a government office and you're asking, what is the first thing I could do? You know, having a spirit of curiosity and asking why and why and why, not presuming that you know, oh, the, what the barriers are really led a lot of our um, heroes and heroines and nonprofits and agencies that we write about, the origin to fixing a problem was being a bit curious about uh, what wasn't working. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, the CARES Act in March 2020, uh, the Car- Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, which was 880 pages. The bill was rushed. Industries with lobbyists got their oars in. Cities and states expressed their needs. What didn't happen? A rapid review of what would help the average family suffering economically from COVID-19. And in the rush to release funds, the tools espoused in this book, human-centered design research, real-time data instrumentation, and testing ideas in a small way before rolling them out, were not deployed, and it shows. Very profound. Also, one other thing I could relate to with Germany. Germany believed that their people were more honest, and yet now we're finding out that uh, not only businesses associated with the previous guy got funding, relatives and friends, and large corporations. Uh, Sports teams worth billions of dollars got PPP funds. Why? I mean, there is a stimulus, as Congress, as my old boss used to say, a stimulus response institution. And there were plenty of of folks up from the airline industries and from, you know, remarkable um, lobbying by folks who were in the, you know, uh, liquor and alcohol like beverage, the 12 people um, trying to get any one of these benefits who represent another 14 million and learn a ton about what words they use uh, to describe this, which questions they got hung up on, and and make a real difference to people in their lives. Well, one of the points you also made is that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. If we want a different set of results, we need to redesign the system. (laughs) Well, that seems kind of obvious, and yet not enough attention is paid to what is actually going on. Yeah, I don't think this is always malfeasance. Sometimes it's just the way that um, programs grow up over time. You have a lot of state and federal agencies where one department oversees the call center where people call for help and some other department oversees the website and someone else in a different department is in charge of the policy guidance for the program. And 
without looking across those three, it's really hard to see how they're going for people in real time. And boy, you know, everyone gets hung up on this particular term. We're going to need some policy guidance that clarifies what that means and who's eligible. And so, you know, there is a little bit of unbreaking systems um, to make them make make sense for the average consumer. You see nascent efforts in state governments. There's an amazing team in the city of Seattle that's working to do this. Um, it's been at it for a number of years and really was um, a critical operation when the city decided to stand up its own COVID testing. Uh, they took all the programs that are av- available for folks in the city of Seattle where to make things more affordable and try to streamline the application so that you answer the questions once, you've answered the questions once, you don't have to do it for your child care and then again for your um you know, some other community discount. And so there's lots of great work going on, going on in, in this way, but it does require kind of thinking it through to who am I serving and how, and how could I bring these systems together? Well, hey, why is the call center in another office? And can we see what the most frequently asked question is? That's not very difficult, but it does require breaking out of boxes and breaking out of the way things have been done. And um, sometimes these systems are designed, like I said, to prevent access. And sometimes it's just defaulted that over years and years we added a question or we started a new thing or this political appointee or this governor, you know, put that in that department. But really just asking like, hey, how come we can't see across to the folks we're serving um, is the ethos that we hope to bring um, through writing this book and through sharing these methods. And another point that you make is that tech is not a unilateral solution. Tech is not the point. The point is to actually improve outcomes. That's exactly right. I think very often, you know, um, one very clear example of this is in 2009 in the Recovery Act, there was $7 billion set aside to modernize state unemployment insurance systems. And 40% of the states met that modernization. What's modernization? That's not a very clear outcome. (laughs) You know, people met the mark, and I don't think any one of us looking around in May and August that people trying to get Unemployment insurance would say that looks modern. You know, people lined up with paper applications at the peak of the pandemic in Florida. I think instead, and there's new modernization dollar in the American, you know, rescue plan, setting a goal. More people get, you know, unemployment insurance on the day they apply. More people, you know, what are the kind of access or outcomes that you want to see? Um, And organizing to outcomes makes a huge difference. And so the tech itself, who cares? You know, there are some really highly functioning um, UI systems that are built on a coding language from before I was born. Um, uh, But they found a way to, you know, build out new features and hang them off the side. Um, It isn't necessarily about the technology. And it's so easy to get caught up in the latest technology, which is always going to change. We really give a strong warning that, um, it is not the technology, it's a tool that helps you advance your goal. And clarifying what it is you are trying to do is the North Star in a lot of this technology work that's often missing. Well, you mentioned unemployment insurance, and I'm going to use that as a segue to get to another point that you made in the book, that when unemployment insurance was first envisioned by the government, it codified racist practices by omitting jobs that were more likely to be held by people of color. And that practice continues to this day. So when people bring up the idea of critical race theory, what they're talking about is that racism is embedded in this country, and you just proved that in talking about the unemployment insurance system that has a racist bent to it. 
And I don't want to get into yeah. that whole thing, but that is an important part here. Yeah, I mean, to be really specific, when labor laws were designed, um, you know, farm workers were cut out of them, domestic workers were cut out of them. At the time and to this day, these are jobs largely occupied by um, uh, people, people of color. And that the resid- residuals of this in the UI system, the unemployment system, are profound. In fact, in the CARES Act, which you described, there was a really um, new policy effort called the Pandemic Unemployment Insurance designed to capture these workers who had been by design cut out, gig workers, people who don't have um, kind of the regular type of salary wage. And it's, it, you know, it, it really threw the system for a loop because we don't know, we're, we're designed to work, to make our unemployment insurance systems work for a certain type of worker. And in the, and uh, when you, even the noble efforts to reach this new type of worker were caught up in a ton of um, fraud and identity theft. There's a lot of misconceptions about this. Um, but in part because the system of having your employer validate who you are helps keep out, um, you know, real identity theft in the system. And when we move to outside of that, it creates a loophole where folks can come in. I think this is an enormously important issue. Some of this is intent. The type classes of workers cut out by design, some of it is just what's left over. Something else we found in our unemployment insurance work is that there's a subset of names, many, many American names, two character last names like Wu, or names like Munoz, of my colleague, uh, colleagues of mine who have an Enya or a, or a hyphen, you know, O'Malley, that the coded systems don't accept. So if you type in your name as it is, out of the get-go, a huge number of states' unemployment systems have been tested on Jane Doe or John Doe. And if you have a hyphen or, or like nearly 100,000 Americans, the last name Wu, you just can't pass go. Um, and so we've kind of accidentally encoded in how we build our technology. We've tested it for a certain type of user, often closing the front door to many other folks. Well, uh, you mentioned before uh, W. Edwards Deming, and he taught the use of data in his Plan, Do, Study Act, a systemic process for learning and continuous improvement. The model relies on asking three questions. What are we trying to accomplish? How will we know a change is an improvement? And what changes can we make that will result in an improvement? Now, these are questions that aren't that often asked. Maybe now, uh, with what your work has been doing, what the book is trying to point out, and by getting these partnerships between outside government nonprofits and the government, maybe we are moving to a place where, as you point out, in order to to get it going, it takes a long time for government to get something done. You're exactly right. I do think there's an element to this where technology does excite people and can be a reason to get, you know, a conversation started about doing something new. But so many elements that we describe in our book are not new at all. Um, while user research kind of drives and powers a bunch of um, technology companies, you could also describe it as good organizing methods, finding out who you're serving, what are the, what, what are the drivers, what, what make people, what people need, what lights them up, it's basic kind of anthropology. So some of these, you know, really get back to Deming's and version of the, you know, the scientific method for the public sector, but really clarifying what is it we're solving? How do we know it's working? Have we talked to the folks for whom we're solving this problem? And why do we think we know better than they do? And how can we integrate them into a feedback loop of making this policy or program better? Uh, You also mention 
uh, that it would be unusual to meet an undergraduate from a top university who aspires to work in the civil service, even at the school that was founded to be the premier training ground for future government leaders, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, a third of graduates take private sector jobs. A decade ago, the school removed government from its name. Uh, that's a sad tale that you tell. It is a sad tale, but uh, I think Hannah and I are truly um, optimists about this. Part of why we are out telling the story about power of the public is, um, you know, Hannah spent most of her life in the private sector, and after a stint in government, could not unsee um, the purpose and uh, of her work. There's also an important role for people who work in the private sector for doing this work. And I think having much more rotation of folks who are switching jobs, as you saw really almost 100 years ago, was greater much more frequent than we have today where you pick a lane um, and you stick to it, that you may be like as Edward Dem as Demings was in working in the private sector and going to help the um, USG in uh, overseas and how it thought about doing some of its war planning. I do think if there's anyone out there who's been listening to this show, who's an, you know, an undergraduate or a graduate and asking themselves, you know, where might I take my talent? The country is us. There are so many roles in county and state and federal um, in the nonprofit sector that supports them. If you feel unsatisfied with what is happening in your community, it's, it's on all of us. And you might be an engineer or a data scientist, or you might be a project manager um, or policy person that we need the hands of many, many people to make the type of improvement improvements we describe in this book. And so um while there is a decline in the number of folks graduating, I think some of that has to do, and going into the public sector, some of that has to do with um, the course of the loans folks have taken on. I do think there's a real opportunity for refreshing and um, bringing a vibrant new generation of leaders to the public sector. Uh, and I think one of the impediments to moving forward, whether it be through technology or other methods, is that where public interest technology does harm, if a product startup fails, so what? If the government fails, people go bankrupt, become homeless, or worse. And one of the examples you use, and not in a good way, is the Michigan Integrated Data Automated System. Can you talk for a minute about that? I can. I think um, you know we give some strong warning labels to the misuse of data and technology um, in the book, including what you just described, Midas in Michigan, a private sector company sold an algorithm to the state of Michigan um, with the promise that it could predict where fraud was happening in the unemployment system. Um, the algorithm was 99% incorrect. Uh, but this discovery of that happened after a series of people were kicked off of their correct unemployment benefits based on the algorithm and created a class action lawsuit demonstrating the data and never really recouping um, what they lost in their moments. And so, you know, uh, that is a private sector actor selling a product to the government, having better oversight of what it is and what, you know, um, what predictive data can and can't do, what the data sources are, as we talked about earlier, and where their shortcomings are, having a, being transparent with the public about where you're using data in these ways and what are the elements that go into an algorithm. Um, and monitoring in real time, it shouldn't have had to come to the place where a class action lawsuit got that changed. The Michigan you know, Department of Labor should have the ability in real time to see 
who's working in to adjudicate these cases so that it doesn't have to go so far afield. But these technologies can be used for advancing public good or undercutting public good. And part of that is um, why we need more folks who are raising their hand to join the public sector who are data scientists who can say, yeah, this is, this is maybe sense. I checked the you know, math underneath this um, and, and could be contributing so that often the public sector is buying these products and doesn't have in-house expertise. Um, that doesn't always have to be the case. Well, let's hope, uh, Tara, that you and Hannah, with uh, what you're doing and with the book that you've written, uh, more people will sit up and listen and maybe follow some of your advice. Uh, and speaking of advice, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? We only have a minute or two left. Yes, I appreciate you um, having us on. We wrote Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology. Um, we had Princeton University Press in, uh, endorse this, not because we like to write books or sell books, but because we believe there is an enormous movement of growing that really helps solve public problems. So I appreciate you in helping us reach out. That, that does mean we're going to have to do things differently, but it is not impossible. Um, we tell the stories of many people who are changing the lives of um, folks around the world for the better using these technologies, but really basically fundamentally understanding what it is that humans want. And you've been listening to Tara Dawson McGinnis, co-author with Ahana Shank of Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology. And I have to let everyone know that when I first got this book from Princeton University Press, I was wondering whether uh, it would be that good a book for me to talk to the author about. And I have to tell you, I'm absolutely certain it was. So the chief publicist of Princeton University Press is Jim Schneider. And I got to tell you, he did the right thing because I've certainly enjoyed the book and I've enjoyed this conversation, Tara. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Be well. This has been Politics, A Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Politics, A Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., alternating with Byline Mendocino. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.